This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. We're very lucky to be joined today by David Solomon, who is president and co-COO of the firm alongside Harvey Schwartz. David previously held a number of leadership positions in our investment bank, most recently as global co-head of that division. David, thanks for joining us today. Glad to be here, Jake. David, we're living in what those of us in finance might call a content-rich environment. Given all that's going on, when you talk to clients right now, what are the areas they're most focused on as it relates to their businesses? You know, I think at a high level, it falls into a handful of buckets. There's a lot of focus on the political environment, in particular, the administration here in the U.S. There's a lot of focus on geopolitics more broadly. Obviously, the situation in North Korea, but it's broader than that. Geopolitically, the world seems a little bit more fragile over the last six to 12 months than it had been the previous 12, 24 months. There's an enormous amount of discussion about technology creating change and disruption in business. Enormous amount of discussion about that. And we've been in an environment where people are obviously focused on monetary policy, but there's been this massive monetary policy all over the world, keeping rates very low, money very, very inexpensive. And markets are going up. And markets are going up with very, very low volatility. And things feel very correlated in one direction. It feels like people are moving out the risk curve. And so all of these are topics, as I've been getting around the world, clients want to engage in. And they all have different implications. People are very, very focused on whether or not we can have some significant policy change here in the U.S., particularly tax policy. A lot of focus on that. There's a lot of focus on whether or not we're reaching the end you know, of this long recovery with markets continuing to rise, asset prices continuing to rise, and are we kind of setting up for the next speed bump? And so people are starting to say, hey, this has been a good momentum. It's not that people think that this period of economic growth here in the U.S., is going to slow down. But people are like, you know, it's been a long run. How should we think about this? How should we think about changes in monetary policy? We thought rates were going to go up all year. It's been slower because inflation really hasn't kicked in here. Growth around the world has been better. What's causing that? There's no question Europe from a growth perspective has outperformed. Global growth has outperformed a little bit. So you have this very interesting environment at the moment. You'd almost call it a little bit of a Goldilocks environment where there's growth. It's not robust, but it's not bad. There's a lot going on geopolitically. The world feels a little bit volatile, but markets are going up. Lots of monetary policy rates are low. Everything's just kind of working, but everybody's kind of like, okay, what's going to go wrong? And so clients really want to engage on where there's risk in the system, where they should be concerned, how they should think about it's going to affect them. And, you know, all these things play a role in that in one way, shape, or form. One of the trends that's gotten a lot of attention in the media, certainly, is the rise of passive investing. We've historically been more of an active money manager through our investment management division. And many of our clients also have that type of a business. They're active managers. How are the trends you're seeing around active and passive having an impact on the firm and on the markets more broadly? We have what I'd call a full-service active management advisory platform, one of the big full-service active management platforms. And we're extremely focused on finding ways in a business that continues to change to add value to our asset management clients. What are the things that we can bring to the table that are really differentiated? We do play in some of the passive management products. We have an ETF business that we're building and we're growing, and there's no question there's a place and a time for those products. But I think the big macro trend that everybody's watching is there's been an enormous flood of money into these passive products, an enormous flood of money. And we've been operating in an environment where there's been very, very low volatility. The market has been going up. And as a result, 
it's been harder in this low-vol, low-interest rate, free-money environment, it's been harder for active managers to really differentiate themselves. And as a result of that, I think more and more people have been putting money in strategies where there's very low fee friction, and they're basically getting a basket of the market or a subsector of the market. And that's led to a lot of growth in a variety of these products. Does that trend go on forever? There's certainly aspects of the shift and the growth in index product or the ETF market that are a permanent secular change in the construct of the way people invest. At the same point, this movement of this perception that the fees associated with managing money are going to zero, that all money is going to be managed passively, that all money is going to be managed in some way, shape, or form programmatically or with some sort of an algorithm or a computer program, we don't see that at all. In fact, some of this you know, is a cycle that in a different environment with higher volatility, higher rates, you'll see a shift back where active managers that can find ways to add value, you'll see a shift back in this. And look, like anything else, one of the things we're worried about right now, Jake, is that there's so much money moving in this direction that something will happen when the money moves in the other direction. A lot of investors are buying some of these products, ETF products, for example, where clearly they think they've got a listed, transparent, tradable security with liquidity. And at the end of the day, if money moves the other way, some of the liquidity is not going to be as available in these products as people expect it is. And so, look, there's a range of securities that go into ETFs, but ultimately the liquidity of the underliers has a real impact on how these instruments will trade at a time of stress. And that's something to watch because it's been a very one-directional flow of money in this direction. We don't think it's permanent, but in the environment we have, it's certainly been a trend in that direction. So we have a global business. You've been traveling the world, seeing clients, seeing our employees. Most recently, you were in India and Australia visiting with clients. I think our folks would be curious to hear about the history of our firm in those markets and what you've heard from clients as you traveled through them. Sure. So interesting trip in Australia. Australia, beautiful place, long way away if you're coming from New York. But when you visit Australia, some of the things that come through right away is you very quickly come to understand how correlated that economy is to the energy space, the mineral space, because of the resources they have, but also to demand out of China. And so there's no question that that's an economy that's correlated to what's going on in China. And so as a result, the economic activity there has felt relatively pretty good over a period of time. That said, politically, like every other place in the developed world, bunch of political struggles, bunch of political tension, And, you know, as a result of that, I'd say good growth, but still people hoping for a little bit more. And the dialogue with clients down there was obviously focused on local issues, but also clients there are looking out at the world. And in particular, they're looking at the U.S. and they're saying, hey, what's going on over there? What's going to happen with your policy over there? What's going on with the administration? We rely on the U.S. for certain things. We have questions about what's happening there right now. And that creates a little bit of caution, a little bit of uncertainty. And spent a lot of time in those meetings talking about those things. People wanted to really get our perspective on how that might ultimately result in policy shifts in the United States. So India, obviously growing quickly, along with China, by far the world's most dynamic big economies anyway. How do those two fit into the firm's future strategy? India is a very interesting market for us in two contexts. Obviously, we operate a business there. We have a banking business there. We have a sales and trading business there. We also have done a lot of investing in our merchant bank, our clients' capital investing in India. It's been an interesting place to invest capital. We've had a good track record and a number of significant successes there. But from a business perspective and our more traditional businesses, 
it's been a small market. While there's activity, the client base has been narrow, and it's been hard to really see the kind of activity in that market, this is looking backward historically, that would really get us excited in our traditional client agency advisory market-making kind of businesses. Things are changing, and I think it's a very, very interesting time there, and I hadn't been there in a handful of years, but when you come now, there are a couple of things that strike you right away. The first thing that strikes you right away is the demographics of the population and the fact that 50% of the population is 25 years or younger. And so if you step back and you think about the implications of that, the government there needs to work through a set of policies that are really going to drive a lot of job creation. They need to be creating 10 million jobs a year as they go forward to really keep up with the demographic mapping of the population. And there's no question that the Modi government has definitely made some real progress and there's a lot of momentum behind some fundamental change there and breaking down the bureaucracy and really moving things forward. And so people are optimistic about that, and it feels like they feel like the government can continue to make some substantive change that can be very accretive for the economy. If you then look at its growth, it's actually growing faster than China at the moment with this very positive demographic underpinning. But there's been so little investment in infrastructure that it's such an open kind of white sheet of paper to operate under that the ability to come in with technological solutions and use technology to disrupt, create, and move that economy forward. It's just a place that outside capital, capital from all over the world, private equity, pension money, et cetera, getting very excited about. And so one of the things that struck me is there's a ton of outside capital kind of gathering there. It's coming from investors. It's coming from the big tech companies because they see the opportunity with this demographic forward and a more constructive government to say, wow, this can really be a place where some interesting things can happen. We're obviously extremely focused on China and we've been investing for a long time and building our business out in China. But I walked away a little bit more optimistic about the business opportunity for us and our clients in India, given the way technology is quickly shifting the landscape there. Now, the second thing about India that's very interesting for us is we have one of our largest offices in Bangalore. We employ about 6,000 people in Bangalore. It's a big tech center. It's a big operations center. We're building a new uh, we're building, office. We're building yeah. a new office in Bangalore. I got to see the new office, which I would say is about two-thirds done. It looks like it's going to be a fabulous, fabulous campus. But like many of the other Fortune 100 companies, we've taken advantage of the talent that's available in that market and the resources that are available. And we have a very, very significant presence there. And the opportunity to spend some time with that team and really connect to how that team is influencing our organization all over the world was really terrific. And I was glad to have the opportunity to do it. You talked about technology. You spend a lot of time with our big technology clients. You also spend a lot of time with our more maybe traditional industrial and consumer companies that have to think about technology and the disruption that's happening in their businesses. How are the clients positioning themselves to stay ahead of some of the innovations, particular artificial intelligence, when talent's at a premium? And how are clients think about the mix about investing in their own capabilities, outsourcing, or even the potential of acquisition? Everybody wants to talk about the way technology is disrupting and changing the business landscape. And it's everywhere. It's happening to us in our business. It's happening to all the clients we deal with in most industries. And you say, how are clients staying in front of it? Well, you know what? It's a struggle because it's happening very, very quickly. And there's a tendency for people to look at things that are working one way and to just assume we're really moving down the road in that direction. And I just think there's going to be an enormous amount of change. And so one of the things we're advising clients, obviously, you have to be looking into AI. You have to be looking 
into VR. You have to be thinking about how these things can affect your business, the products, the way you connect with your clients, your customers, the way you leverage your people and your talent to be more effective with your clients and customers. But we're also advising people to stay flexible because the amount of change is going to be very significant. If you look at retail, which is obviously a space where there's just enormous assumption of disruption, still almost 90% of all the shopping people do they do physically, done not in online. Stores, yeah. done in stores. It's going to yeah. continue to be done in stores. Sure, there's melt in certain businesses. There's erosion in certain places. But it's not a given that this is all going away. And I think some of the emphasis, if you look at the mall companies, people in the United States will talk about how over-retailed we are. But if you actually look at the A-class prime malls, the best malls, they're actually doing pretty well. There's going to be a lot of change. They probably need to invest. They probably need to change their offering. They probably need to use technology more in their offering. But at the same point, I bet that going to a mall, having an experience in a mall is not something that's going away. And there's going to be an evolution around this. You look at Amazon that obviously was the big disruptor here, but Amazon is building stores. Amazon is acquiring real estate. Amazon is they finding bought some ways. stores. They I bought think. some stores. Yeah. Well, they, you know, in the Whole Foods acquisition, they bought a lot of stores. And so it's a complicated matrix of change, but it's going to continue to change, and it's something we're all going to have to watch very, very carefully. You need technology. People talk about technology companies. Someone would say that Uber is a technology company. Uber is a company that's providing a service, and they use technology to deliver that service. Goldman Sachs is providing service, and we use technology to deliver that service. It's very hard to find a business today that doesn't need to have really good technology to be competitive in delivering, manufacturing, connecting, doing the things that that business does. Technology is just everywhere, and it's accelerating the pace of change. It's making things more transparent. It's making things happen quicker. It's filling in some of the moats around businesses, makes the world a little bit more competitive. And at the same point, for all of us that have human capital, you know, in our businesses that play a big role in the way our businesses work, you think about us as a professional services business, technology allows our employees, our people, to be more effective with clients, to help clients solve their problems better, faster, quicker. And so we're thinking a lot about how technology really leverages and makes our human capital even more differentiated than it currently is. You've worked on Wall Street now for more than 30 years. How's the finance culture evolved during that time, and how do you think it's going to continue to evolve, or how must it evolve if it's going to remain attractive for the kind of talent we need to hire? Well, I'd just start by saying that I actually haven't physically worked on Wall Street since 1984. My first job, which was at the Irving Trust Company, whose address was number one Wall Street, and that is actually the only time in my entire career that I actually physically worked on Wall Street. I've walked around in that neighborhood recently, and it's changed a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so the first thing I'd say is the neighborhood has There's changed. There's not that much uh, Wall Street There's not Wall that Street. much Wall Street and Wall Street yeah. anymore. You walk around there on a Saturday now. I mean, it used to be deserted. It's you a, walk around a Saturday. Residential a neighborhood. thriving residential neighborhood, actually. Yeah. A you know, really vibrant neighborhood. But I've worked in finance for 35 years now, and we were talking about this recently together. The change is remarkable. When I started in 1984, the firms were small. A lot of them were private, or some of them were just starting to go public. They were partnerships. The business was primarily a regional business. So if you were at a U.S. firm, it was primarily a regional business. The business was not that complicated. People were not taking a lot of risk. Technology really didn't exist as a tool to help you. So there was tremendous information advantage in everything you did. A lot of paper, a lot of research to get information. Legal you know, pads. Legal pads, lots of legal pads. 
you know, that green paper that you used to write the numbers down. By the way, this was before Lotus 123, let alone Excel. Um, so, you know, it was just a lot of very open space. And so in the context of that, it was extremely, extremely entrepreneurial. And there was an enormous amount of growth because the world was changing quickly and finance was going through globalization that really occurred through the 90s as you went from kind of a local regionalized business to global financial businesses. One of the things that's interesting, what's the same? It's still a pretty entrepreneurial business. A lot of what we do in our business requires people to work very entrepreneurially on teams to find solutions for clients. And that entrepreneurial spirit is still very, very important in this business, in this industry. What's changed is the speed, the information flow, tremendous competition, scale matters enormously. So back 30 years ago, you could open a small business and it was easy to get a lot of traction. You still can in certain areas have small niche businesses, but scale matters a lot in these businesses. Capital is very, very important. It's a lot of risk that you have to take and you have to manage that risk well. And so these have become much bigger, much more complex, much more global businesses. And to really survive and thrive, you have to operate in a more structured way. But I think to really be successful with your clients and serve your clients well, you have to have a culture of entrepreneurialism and problem solving and openness to change and innovation that I think is still very, very important in finance. And I think that's something that has stayed with finance through all those changes. One of the places where we've struggled and finance has struggled is on the diversity front. I mean, we've made some strides. There's obviously a lot more we have to do. How do you think about that issue of making the firm more diverse and attracting better talent? Well, it's something that as a leadership team, we have been incredibly focused on. We continue to be incredibly focused on. It's a very, very important business initiative, and it's very, very important for our people. One of the things that we spend a lot of time thinking about is that the quality of the people we have here at Goldman Sachs that are building their careers at Goldman Sachs, that want to be a part of Goldman Sachs, is one of the things that really differentiates us with our clients. You know, as I travel around, I really, big smile goes on my face when I meet with clients and they say, you guys have great people. You guys have really talented people. And so we recognize that for us to continue to be really successful and serve our clients well, we have to have great people in our organization. People want to work in an organization that's diverse, that's open, that has all different kinds of people, is very accepting. And so we work really hard to try to build that kind of culture. It's not easy, even though we've moved the ball forward, it's not easy to move it forward as quickly as we would like to move it. And so we've started trying to think in a very pragmatic way about how we can continue to increase the diversity of our population all over the world. We hire a lot of people out of school in the first couple of years that they're out of school. We're thinking a lot more about those recruiting processes and how to really get real gender equality, 50-50 in terms of men and women as we're recruiting young people out of school. Thinking a lot about processes to think about the lateral hiring that goes on over the years. There, unlike when you're recruiting from colleges and you have a clearly kind of 50-50 pool of men and women, when you look at lateral hiring, you're hiring more senior people, you don't have that same pool to search from. And so we're thinking about ways that we can be more thoughtful about increasing you know, the diversity of that lateral hiring. It's not just gender, it's also people of color, different ethnicity. And so there's a lot of focus on it. But we believe that you have to have aspirational goals and push the organization, but be practical about taking a long-term approach toward moving forward. And it's not easy, 
but we're going to continue to focus on it because it's really an imperative for us to be the kind of human capital organization that we want to be. There's rightly been a lot of focus recently on the struggles Silicon Valley and the technology industries had with diversity. Do you see a role there for Goldman Sachs to help some of the companies, many of which are important clients of the firm? We were wrestling with this issue, which was a very, very difficult issue, before these companies were founded. And so these companies went from small little entrepreneurial companies, they've become big, big companies very quickly, and now they're very focused on this. But just from a practical, factual perspective, they started getting focused on this 20 years after we did. And so, you know, it's not surprising that we've wrestled with these issues and made progress in certain ways, but they're focused on it. They know that it's right for their business too, and they're going to make progress. You went to a small liberal arts college in New York, Hamilton College, and you've remained involved there. What did you take away from your college experience that's helped you get to where you are today? And how'd you end up there in the first place? I did go to Hamilton College in upstate New York. I kind of look back now and I applied to a lot of colleges, you know, in the Northeast. I grew up outside of New York City in Westchester County. I grew up in a town called Hartsdale, New York. I kind of wonder now why I didn't apply to school in like California or Southern California or something like that. We all kind of look back, but I guess the world was a little bit different then. A lot of people didn't stray as far from home. I grew up and I went to a small public high school. There were about 125 kids in my graduating class. And, you know, I enjoyed that environment. And I thought that if you were going off to college, the concept of going from 125 kids in a class to 450 seemed like a jump to something that was meaningfully bigger, going from 125 to 2,000 or 3,000. Or 10 or 20,000. Or 10 or 20,000. I mean, it just seemed like I wanted to continue to be in that kind of environment. So I found my way to Hamilton. It was a great experience. I had a great four years there. And there were certain things about Hamilton and its curriculum that I think really stuck with me. And I've been involved on the board at Hamilton for the last 20 years. And I spent a lot of time, feel very, very fondly about the school. One of my two daughters attended Hamilton, which was a real treat for me. Hamilton always emphasized communication as a real core tenet of its curriculum, written communication and oral communication. One of the requirements of every student that goes to Hamilton is they have to take public speaking as a freshman. And when I kind of look back and think about things that have helped me along the way in my career, communication is super, super important. And Hamilton gave me a basis for both thinking and communicating that I think has helped a lot, you know, in the context of the way my career meandered. Now, I had no idea that I was going to be in finance and I'd be 30 some years later sitting talking to you about finance as that kind of career. But I kind of stumbled into it. I got a job at a commercial bank. I mentioned Irving Trust. Back in the 80s, they had these training programs. You graduated, you went, they gave you a salary, and you basically went to graduate school at the bank for a year. You went to classes Monday through Friday. They had business school professors that would come, and you worked for kind of 11 months in that kind of environment, and then they placed you into the bank. I learned a bunch that rooted me in kind of credit and credit analysis, which I think was helpful later in my career. And I was applying to business school when I got a job at Drexel Burnham. And when I got to Drexel, and there were a lot of things about Drexel that were great, and there were obviously a lot of things about Drexel that didn't really work. I learned lessons on both sides. But there was an energy there and an openness to really go be entrepreneurial and work with clients that really got me excited. I was selling commercial paper, and then I was selling high-yield bonds. I was trading certain products, and I really got excited about the ability I had to either impact clients or impact transactions. And it really got me fired up about finance. And I found myself starting to really throw myself into it with more passion and more energy. I started reading more, started really getting excited about what I was doing. And that really kind of got me hooked and in. And at that point, I realized this is kind of a career for me. I'm really going to spend some time and try to figure this out. 
there's a lot of specialization today, and a lot of people go into college and get very niche very fast. What advice would you give today to the liberal arts major who's thinking about their career? Whether it's finance or it's whatever you want to do, there are certain things that I think if you're a liberal arts major, you should really consider in the context of your education. And first is communication, communication skills. Take public speaking. Take some writing classes. Think about how you can develop communication skills because it'll help you in anything that you do. And it's a really important skill. I see some incredible resumes that over the years come across my desk. Really, really incredible resumes. And then you sit down and you talk with the person. Incredible in terms of what they've accomplished. But when you start to sit down and talk with them, they can't really communicate or articulate in a way that backs up just the raw academic performance. And someone with that kind of package might do okay in the context of where their career takes them. But if they can figure out how to really hone their communication skills, their ability to connect to people, relate to people in a better way, that'll be helpful in anything they pursue. Another piece of advice I got from my father that was a really terrific piece of advice, and I also gave it to both my daughters, neither of whom followed it, and neither of whom are in finance. And by the way, I think this is a piece of advice that's a good piece of advice, whether you're in finance or not, is everyone should take accounting. Everyone should take a semester of accounting. Just understanding basic accounting really helps you understand how a lot of the world works from an economic perspective. From Any, small business to Small big. business yeah. to big business. Center, it's, to household there's, there's family. Household, yeah. running your own household right. to running a huge company to starting a business. If you want to be an entrepreneur, having some grounding in that, I think is a really base skill that in a liberal arts education, you actually can put in the package. And then next, I'd say you're going to school, study some things that you're interested in or you're passionate about because it'll round you out and it'll make you more interesting. And when you dig into things that you have some passion about or some interest in, you go a little deeper, you work a little bit harder. And so take some time to enjoy it. I mean, I'd love to go back to college, unfortunately. Not available at the moment. Wasted on the young. (laughs) Wasted on the young. But those are three things I'd throw out. I know they're high-level things, but going to college is a development experience. Yes, people need to be focused on, I got to get out of college. I got to pay down my loans. Got to work, et cetera. But the things I'm talking about, if you work hard and you do well and you add some of these things, they add a context around who you are, it's going to help you achieve the professional goals that you have, in my opinion. So speaking of passion, I think we'd be remiss not to touch on your side hobby. In some circles, you're known as DJ Desol. How'd you get into music? And do you think seeing the present and co-CEO of Goldman Sachs at a turntable might help change some perceptions about the industry? I don't know whether seeing a president of Goldman Sachs spinning tunes at a club is going to change the perception of the industry. We've got a lot of work to do on that front. But look, for me, It's something that I'm really passionate about. And, you know, I've been doing this a long time. One of the things I've thought about a lot is to do this for a long time and do it successfully, you need energy. And it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. And so if you can't find a way to have passions and pursue those passions and mix them into your professional life and your personal life in some way, shape, or form, it's just harder to have the energy to keep on doing this and to keep moving forward professionally. And by the way, it's not just our business. The world is extremely competitive. The world's extremely fast-paced. In almost any business or industry you're in, you're going to work hard if you want to perform at a high level, if you want to be competitive. And you got to have other interests, other passions, I think, to keep you going. You know, in terms of music, for me, I always loved music. You know, I was a very analog guy when I was in college. I must have had over a 1,000 LPs, vinyl albums. I loved music. I, um, Probably worth something today. Yeah, by the way, they are worth something today. Vinyl's coming back, and it's really amazing what's happening with vinyl. And When you actually now, when you listen to a vinyl record playing live, 
because we've all been listening to all this computerized music, Clean all this music, digital music, yeah. and you listen to it, it sounds entirely different. Go back and listen to Bruce Springsteen, Born to Run, on a vinyl album, and just the richness of the sound. It's really wonderful. But I've always loved music, and as music started to digitize 10, 15 years ago, the ability as a hobby to really collect, curate, listen to, dive into it in a completely different way. You know, you think about it, you go back to LPs and then CDs. The ability to curate music for yourself just for your enjoyment was complicated. You had to buy these things and then you had to go through them. And if there was a CD or an album and there were 10 tracks, there were two that you liked and there were... And you had to transfer it to something digital. And you had to transfer it to something digital, et cetera. But as you had an ability to actually buy, download first and now stream, and the thing that's amazing, I mean, I think this year I just saw a statistic that 63% of all music is being consumed in a streaming form now. The ability to kind of curate, study, listen to, try different things, expand your horizons, it just went up exponentially. And so as that happened, I started getting more and more interested in different kinds of music, music I really didn't have a lot of experience with. And five, seven years ago, I started really kind of taking note of club and EDM music and what was happening with all the electronic music. And I said, this is really interesting, big business, and started looking at it. I said, you know, I like some of this music and started playing around with it, started reading about these DJs that really had these incredible platforms. And I said, you know what, this looks interesting and kind of stumbled into it as a hobby. And now I just do it for fun, do it once a month for fun. And I really enjoy it. But it also is giving me exposure to a whole part of the music world that I never would have had a connection to. You've obviously been pretty vocal inside the firm telling young people that they have to have passion outside of that. What else have you been trying to do to change a little bit of the grinded out culture at Goldman and make this a better career for people? A lot of us at the firm that have been working together to help the firm evolve. The world's changed. When I got out of school and I was in my 20s and somebody said, jump, I said, how high? And one of the reasons I said how high was, candidly, there was very little information about what other options I had. You know, there was very little you information. You weren't sure you were employable. Yeah. Yeah, there was very little information as to what else you could do. You know, I had a bunch of friends. I kept in touch with them, but I kept in touch with them by getting together with them, maybe after work occasionally, on the weekends, obviously. But I wasn't in constant touch with them. And the network of friends got smaller, not wider, because it was hard to communicate and stay in touch. I look at my kids today in their 20s, hundreds and hundreds of friends that they're really in touch with every day. They know everything that's going on in each other's life. Did you get a promotion? Did you get fired? Did you have a good day? Did you have a bad day? How much are you making? Did you get a raise? There's so much transparency and so much more visibility on the opportunities that exist. And in the context of that, if you want to, as an organization, retain people, you have to have an experience that in this transparent, competitive world is a really top quality experience. And so, yes, they've got to work hard, but yes, they have to be learning. You have to invest in their learning and their development. You have to give them options for movement and change. And you've got to create an atmosphere where people can work hard, but they also have opportunities to have a life, to play hard, and to have some balance in all of that. And it's not an easy thing to get right, but I think it's our job to figure out how to do that. And so we've done a lot in terms of trying to set some boundaries, to try to communicate better as to what's expected, to try to think about programs that we have that invest in continuing education and continuing personal development. And also, I think people kind of look at the way the leaders in this organization are living and they want to look up and say, hey, do I want to be like that? Do I want to live like that? And so I think it's important for all of us as leaders across the organization 
Be open with people about what we do outside of work and how we live and show people that you can work hard and you can achieve a lot professionally, but you can do a lot you know, outside of work. And actually, one of the great things about Goldman Sachs is Goldman Sachs is a great platform for you to have opportunities to get involved in all sorts of really interesting things. All that is stuff we've got to continue to work at. But for us to continue to be such a high quality employer, we're going to have to invest in that stuff. And we're going to have to invest in it more candidly in the next 10, 20 years than we had to invest in it in the last 10, 20 years. David, that's a great way to close out. Thanks for joining us here today. My pleasure. Enjoyed it, Jake. Always good to see you. That concludes this episode of Exchanges Goldman Sachs. I'm Jake Seward. We hope you join us again next time. This podcast was recorded on September 7th, 2017. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast is not financial research, nor a product of Goldman Sachs Global Investment Research. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.